I want to share with you, as we study the Bible, I want to welcome, of course, everybody watching by webcast and our online church community and everybody who's connected to us worldwide and citywide and community-wide. And if you're in the Chicago area, come join us in person on Sunday and be a part of our church family and, and experience the love of God that never fails and the love of God that just oozes out of his spirit and out of his people and Boy, love never fails. God's love is so good, isn't it? Aren't you glad to, to be loved by God? Aren't you happy? That really, the greatest happiness in life is, is the assurance that you're loved. I think the great author, Victor Hugo, the great, the great playwright and author, he said, um, you know, he said the, the, the supreme happiness in life is the assurance that you're loved. Boy, when you really have assurance that you're loved, it's the, it's the epitome, it's the essence of happiness. It's really, uh, it's called by scientists have, just, have just discovered that love is a drug. It's a drug that is not a, a artificial stimulant or an artificial drug. It's really a, it is, but it is a, uh, called a love, love is called the love drug by some scientists who have studied that love creates and, um, and amplifies and, and, and multiplies the chemicals in our brain of, called serotonin and dopamine. And uh, for those of you that, uh, that used to do drugs, you know, some of us were dope, I mean, you and me, right? Dopamine. Uh, we were dopes that we did dope, but it made us happy. And that's why we did it. We didn't, nobody, nobody gets addicted to alcohol because it makes them miserable. They get addicted to alcohol because it makes them feel good. They get addicted to drugs because it makes them feel good. Because it, 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 is, it activates chemicals in the brain that reaches the pleasure center of the brain. I'm not talking about this tonight. But it, uh, it reaches, it's, it, it's the chemical reaction of dopamine and serotonin, which is what which is what frees people and calms people from anxiety, depression, and unhappiness, sadness. It's amazing that, that man has tried to replicate and manufacture what only God can truly do without side effects. There are no side effects to the love drug. There are side effects to every other drug, but there's no side effects to love. Love never fails. Love never fails. It never fails. Well, we'll get into that another time. And we talk about that in one of our upcoming books that uh, is coming out soon. I think you'll really enjoy as well. But um, so I'm excited about announcing that when, when the time comes in a couple weeks. But, um, <clears throat> but I want to have you turn in your Bible to John chapter 14. And um, I want to talk to you today about healing insecurities. Healing insecurities. Well, another word for insecurity is fear. You know, it really is insecurity is really comes from the word fear. In fact, all of our problems come from fear. Fear was the first emotion that Adam and Eve experienced after they sinned. They, after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what really, what was their sin? Their sin was not eating from a tree. That was the fruit of the sin. Their real sin was believing a lie. Their real sin was believing something contrary to God's word. It all, I love to study Genesis because I like to go back to the beginning of where man's problems began and why God went to the lengths that he went to to solve man's problems through Jesus. Although I do believe and am convinced that God knew man was going to sin and had already made up his mind that Jesus was going to come to the earth and die for our sin and rise from the dead and he was going to be the son of God in the earth, the son of man and the son of God. God had already made up his mind because in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, it says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, how could the Lamb of God be slain before the foundation of the world when Jesus didn't come until 2,000 years ago? Well, even as you heard Steve mention something about how everything works in reverse with God. Everything works from, it's the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and the Omega came before the Alpha. The end came before the beginning, really. That in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 is really not the beginning. In the beginning of Genesis, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. Well, that was the beginning as we understand it, but it certainly wasn't God's beginning. God's always been. He didn't have a beginning. He is the beginning. That's why he likes baseball. He likes big innings. But... There is no beginning or end to God. He is, he is that, that. He doesn't 
he doesn't have a beginning and have an end. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. But God knew before the foundation of the world, I'm going to create man. I'm going to give them the power to, to live victoriously. I'm going to give them dominion in the earth. I'm going to make them little gods in the world. I'm going to make them little lords in the earth. And, and they're going to have complete dominion over everything. But I know they're going to sin because I know everything. But I'm still going to create them because love gives the freedom to choose even when it might know that the person who you're giving that freedom to is is going to choose the wrong thing or has the potential or the power to choose the wrong thing, which God did know Adam and Eve were going to do that. But he didn't it didn't stop him from creating us like he could have said, no, forget it. They're going to sin. So I'm not going to create them. But why would he create us? Because he loves us. And why did he create Adam and Eve knowing that Adam and Eve would sin? Because he still because love what makes it love is that it gives love, gives freedom. Love, love doesn't make or demand somebody to obey. Love gives freedom to disobey. It's not love if you had to obey God. If you had to obey God, it wouldn't be love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. He was saying, if you if you really love me, obedience will flow out of the overflow of your love for me. And of course, our love for God flows out of his love for us. We love him because he first loved us. First John four nineteen says, I'm, I know I'm saying a lot of things before I even get, get to this, but it's really important that we understand that all fear and all insecurities came from not believing God's word. When Adam and Eve chose not to believe God's love, that he's holding out on us. It was a lie. God's holding out on us. He doesn't want us to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't want us to be like him, knowing good and evil, when really Adam and Eve already were like God because God made them in his image. Right. So when the devil comes and says, well, you're not like God, you, you, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows you'll be like him when you eat from it. Well, they already were like him. And the devil's been doing that ever since. That's his game. His game is to get you to doubt who you already are and to get you to try to constantly compensate for who you think you should be, even though you're not measuring up to that. So you have to compensate for that. That's where all sin comes from. An attempt to compensate for what feels deficient in our soul. Even Adam and Eve sinned because they didn't sin because they were sinners. They were made in the image of God. They didn't sin because they were had an evil nature. They had God's nature. They didn't sin because they were uh, they were flawed in some way. They were perfect. Come on. Are you with me here? So what made them sin was that they bought a lie that they needed to compensate for what was lacking and deficient in their life. There wasn't anything deficient in their life. And yet when they believed that there was something deficient, it led them to make a decision to eat in order to compensate for what the lie that they bought concerning their deficiency. And so this is why knowing who we are as sons and daughters of God, that's why there's so much in the Bible about knowing who we are in Christ. That's why there's so much in the Bible about knowing that we're sons and daughters. We're not slaves of God. We're sons and daughters of God. We're not uh, we're not. God doesn't demand of us like you don't demand your children as they get older to to obey you. You hope they will. And you hope then later in life that they'll respect you and that they'll seek your counsel and seek your coaching and seek your input. There's different stages of parenting. The first one is is obedience and, and training them to obey. But then the ne- but then as they get older, the, the it steps we step into a new stage of parenting. And that's that's where we're modeling for them how to behave. And then we're coaching them and then we're encouraging them and then we're flinging them into their destiny and waiting for them to ever come back if they need our input and need our counsel, which hopefully if we parented them up to that point, they'll constantly come back and seek godly counsel. Even when we get older, we should be seeking advice and counsel. No matter how old we are, we should always be seeking to learn and study and grow and get better. All right. I know I'm, I haven't seen you guys in a while on Wednesdays, so I'm, you know, I've got a lot stored up in me for you. And uh, just trying to dump it all ah, on you. But uh, hopefully you'll be encouraged by the time we're done. Um, 
But in John 14, 7, so I want to de- deal with this, this uh, arena of insecurity, and, and I'll tell you why in a couple moments. But Jesus came, look at Jesus said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father since and also and from now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus is saying, if you if you if you've seen me, you've seen the father from now on, you will know him because you know me and you'll see him because you see me and you'll hear from him because you're hearing from me. So what Jesus was doing was he was dismantling all of the accumulated misconceptions of what God was really like. And he was revealing for us what God's really like. First of all, Jesus came for a multi-layered purpose. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save us from our sins. He came to remove sin from us. But he also came to dismantle the mythology, the myths and the absurdities and the misconceptions about God. So when we see Jesus preaching to the Jewish people, he's preaching the law to them to awaken them to their awareness of their need for a savior. But when we see him living his life and modeling life, we see that this is an exact representation of what the father is like. So the so what does Jesus do in his actions? What is his life like? Well, his life is full of Whenever he comes in contact with the sick, he heals them. When he comes in contact with the dead, he raises them up. When he comes in contact with the lepers, he cleanses them. When he comes comes in contact with the demon possessed, he casts the demons out. When he comes in contact with the brokenhearted, he heals the brokenhearted. When he comes in contact with the poor, he takes care of them, blesses them, feeds the hungry. Everything that Jesus did is a representation of what God is truly like. And the reason we get insecure is because we're not sure we're pleasing to God. We're not sure that God is happy with us. And this gap, insecurity is caused by a gap between what we hope God feels towards us and what we actually feel that he feels towards us. And this is why we need to stop worrying about what we feel God feels towards us and believe the love that God has for us. And 1 John 4:16 says, "We have come to believe the love that God has for us." Did you hear that we have come to believe the love that God has for us? And so when he says, "We have come to believe the love that God has for us," that means that it's a process to get to that place where we believe the love that God has for us. We we believe it in certain measure But God wants us to believe it without measure, that his love for us is without measure. And we have this version says we have known and believed the love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Well, it actually is translated as we have come to know the love that God has come. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. So there's a there's a processing word there. We have come to know. It's a coming to know. It's a process. It's not like, you know, it all of a sudden and that's it. You never you never have to know it any further. It's the it's unfathomable. Right. The, the Bible says the love of God is unfathomable. That's the 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 that is the uh, nautical term for, you know, not being able to measure to the bottom of the water, not being able to measure to the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the sea, how many fathoms to the bottom of the water or the bottom of the of the, the sea, how many fathoms. And it's unfathomable. There are not there. There's there's no measuring stick for how many fathoms that God loves us. It's unfathomable. It's immeasurable. Oh, man, somebody's got to say amen to that. That, that, that makes me happy. I hope it makes you happy. Um, so all of Jesus acts of compassion and kindness were expressions of the father's true nature. Jesus saw himself as a son, so he didn't need a title or position. That's why when God, when the, when the first voice of God, we hear speaking to Jesus, there's a reason why that's the first thing we hear from heaven when it says in Mark 1, 11, and a voice came from heaven and said, a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son and in you I'm well pleased. In Mark 1, 11, 
or the New Living Translation, uh, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Can you imagine the confidence and the security that that brings somebody? A voice from heaven, like if you heard it thunder and then on the heels of that thunder, all of a sudden it is tangible words. And because some of them thought it was thunder because they can't inter- you can't you, they couldn't interpret. You can't interpret God's voice until you interpret it through the through the lens, through the lens and through the ears of love. You'll never hear the voice of God accurately until you hear it through love because God's God is love. So anytime you know how when you send somebody a text and it's just you, you're in a hurry and you just send it and you didn't really think through the words that you chose. And, and then they're like, what? You really hate my guts. I can't believe you. You feel that way. And you're like, I didn't say anything like that. But that's what it seems like you were intending. But see, when you know somebody's nature, when you know how somebody actually feels and what their character is, you can't misinterpret their words. You can only misinterpret somebody's words when you don't understand what they're truly like. So the reason why we misinterpret the Bible and there's so many uh, not translations, the, the multitude of translations of the Bible are great. But there's because there, the reason there's so many interpretations, differing opinions of Scripture is the vast opinions that exist is because of a lack of knowledge of the author. Because if you knew the author, you'd understand what he means by what he says. So when you see in the Old Testament nations being destroyed and you say, well, God is destructive. God is a murderer. God is a killer of nations. No, not at all. If you understand what God is like, then you'd realize God gave Israel a mandate to recruit other nations into the fold. And he, but if they rejected that opportunity, they were, they had to be destroyed if they became a threat to Jesus being born. It wasn't a matter of them being a threat to Israel. God's God's protective hand wasn't on Israel because of where it was located. It wasn't on Israel because of the because of the Hebrew language. It was it wasn't on Israel because of the Jewish people. It was on Israel because Israel was going to be the cradle of where Jesus would be born. So to destroy uh, for a nation to destroy Israel would be the end of our opportunity of salvation. So God got really fierce when it came to protecting your salvation and making sure Jesus came to this earth to do everything he came to do. So it's love that it, it, it was love to if you were, I mean, to protect your children, you would you would do whatever it took to protect your children. That's all God was doing. He would much rather win them. That's why when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, created the Tigris and Euphrates River, those rivers went north, south, east and west, because what God's original plan was, was for Israel to export or for Adam and Eve to export from the Garden of Eden every good thing that they were learning from God. Every good thing that they had and every good thing that they had learned and everything, every good thing, all them walking in the walking with God in the cool of the day and everything they were learned, they were they were supposed to reproduce themselves, multiply themselves and then and then transport everything north, south, east and west. And really. It's no different. We're no different now than Adam and Eve We're born again, made in the image of God and restored to our original intention. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go north, south, east and west and take the good news everywhere. We're supposed to take the good news of God's presence, God's grace, the gospel, the salvation of Jesus on the cross. All of that is supposed to be we're supposed to carry that to the world. And we will when we really get a hold of it. The the, the lack of evangelism in this world. This makes sense to anybody so far. The lack of evangelism in the world is not a result of a lack of evangelists. It's not a result of a lack of zealous people. 
the lack of evangelism is the result of a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because when people when it penetrates your brain, how much God loves you and how much he's done for us on the cross, it will be natural for you to share it with people. It won't be where you got to learn 16 steps to evangelize your neighbor, 23 keys to winning the soul, 58 secrets to experiencing revival. None of that is necessary when love is flowing out of you from the richness of how God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Right. So, uh, man, I know you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with insecurity? All right, we're getting there. (laughs) Jesus saw himself as a son. You're my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And by the way, that's what God said to Jesus. And guess what? As he is. So are we in this world. Whatever God says to Jesus, he's saying to us. You are my dearly loved son or daughter. You bring me great joy. How could Jesus have brought the father great joy? Jesus hasn't preached a sermon yet. Jesus hasn't walked on water yet. Jesus hasn't turned water into wine yet. Jesus hasn't healed the sick yet. Jesus hasn't fed the multitudes yet. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. Jesus hasn't opened his mouth really here yet to say one word, one verse, one scripture. He hasn't spoken the word. He hasn't prophesied. He hasn't won anybody. He hasn't picked a disciple yet. He hasn't done anything. Why? Because God wants us to have our security rooted in God's love for us, not based on our performance or based on anything we can do to earn it or to deserve it. That's what grace is. Undeserved love and favor. Undeserved love, unmerited love and favor. So Jesus didn't need a title. That's why the father didn't say you are my evangelist. Call yourself prophet Jesus. He didn't say now you are my apostle. He did. He, see, he didn't need a title. You don't need a title. I can't tell you how many people have come through the church, come through the team, said, man, I want to be used by God. Can you give me a title? What's my title? Well, I need a title. Uh, yeah. OK. Son or daughter of God. If that's not good enough for you, you'll never make it in the ministry. You are my dearly loved son. What was Jesus title? Son. Son. That was enough. And it's got to be enough for you. But when you are, when you when you're when you need a title or a position, that's why Jesus didn't have a problem serving and washing his disciples feet. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of Lords, gang. How can we have a problem picking up trash? How can we have a problem changing diapers in the kids in kids town? How can we have a problem doing any menial thing when Jesus washed his disciples feet as the son of God, as the Lord of Lords? He comes and humbles himself and not only to the not only to become a man, but the servant of all men. And he picks these crazy disciples, tax collectors and cussing sailors and fishermen and 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 you name it, these guys are not these guys are the misfits. These guys remember uh, Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer or whatever uh, Christmas cartoon that was the island, the land of the misfits or the island. This is that's the disciples. They're the misfits. They don't fit in. But Jesus says, I'll take you. Man wanted to choose all eight of David's brothers first. But God chose David. Jephthah was described as a mighty man of valor, but what disqualified him in man's eyes was his mother was a prostitute. But it wasn't didn't disqualify him to God. See, we've got to get our security from our sonship, not 
titles, positions, uh, status, whether we're male, female, whether we're whether we're grew up rich or poor, black or white, Asian, Caucasian, Malaysian, <laughs> invasion, you name it, it doesn't matter. You come, you can come from another planet. Who cares? In Christ, we're all the same sons and daughters. We're his favorite. But so is your the person sitting next to you. You're God's favorite. But so am I. God's got you. In his photo. Library. But he's got me there, too. Well, which one of us is first? Doesn't matter when you know you're a son or daughter. It doesn't matter. You don't care about position. Jesus didn't care about position. Well, I wish I could get this across to you today. Only the dignity that comes from sonship. When I say sonship, we're talking about being a son or daughter of God, being being children of God. Only the dignity that comes from sonship can overcome the shame, the insecurity of abandonment, the insecurity and the shame that comes from your weaknesses, your idiosyncrasies, your your differences, your shortcomings, your 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 flaws, the things that other people compare or you compare to others and you have you don't have what they have. Look, having what they have will not heal you of insecurity because it it will deceive you into thinking that you have a false sense of security now in that you measure up to somebody else. And God doesn't call us to measure up to anybody, nor does he call us to look down at anybody or look up to anybody, but to know that we're sons and daughters of God. And this dignity in Romans 8, 14, let me read this to you. Romans 8, 14. Boy, I hope this makes sense to you. I want There's a reason I'll get to the reasons why this is so important. But in Romans 8, 14, it says for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God and Really, it's actually translated as all those that are sons of God will be led by the spirit of God. Verse 15, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage or slavery to again to fear that leads to fear. You didn't receive the spirit of bondage that leads to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, father, daddy, father, father, father. Verse 16, for the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, verse 17, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Now, suffering with him doesn't mean what religion has taught us. Religion has taught us you got to suffer by giving up this and giving up that and being treated this way and being treated that way. And those things can sometimes be a part of our lives. But suffering with him means identifying with his suffering on the cross. Suffering with him means when you are baptized in water, it's a symbol of being buried with him and raised up with him in newness of life. Baptism does not bury you with Christ. Baptism coming up out of the waters of baptism does not raise you up with Christ. It's symbolic of your burial and it's, it's symbolic of the Red Sea, you know, drowning the old nature and the old way and the Red Sea, the, the children of Israel going through the Red Sea and the Red Sea drowning the armies of Egypt that came chasing after the children of Israel. That's what that's what baptism is the symbol of. It's it's not there's nothing magical that happens in the water. It already happened in Christ. He died on the cross. We died with him. He took our pain and suffered. We suffered with him. You understand? In other words, that's the suffering he's talking about. We don't have time to get into that in detail, but um, we'll come back to that another time. The if you look over and look at what he says in verse 17, if you're children, then you're an heir, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Say that I'm a child of God 
I'm an heir of God and I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. A joint heir means you're joined in the same inheritance as he gets. His inheritance is your inheritance. Esau's inheritance is the firstborn son of uh, Isaac. Esau's inheritance is Jacob's inheritance. Esau's blessing is Jacob's blessing. Esau's birthright is Jacob's birthright. Esau is the, you know, really a a Hebrew derivative of the name Jesus. Jesus. Esau is a type and shadow of Jesus, the older brother coming out of the womb first and the younger brother, Jacob, that's you and me holding on to the foot of the gospel of Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Remember, Jacob's holding on to the foot. He like comes out with Esau like I'm, you're not you not. Hey, you coming out is me coming out. You getting the blessing is me getting the blessing, even though he had to deceive to get it. We don't have to deceive to get it. It's the difference. Well, that's another topic for another day, too. Um, here's uh, look at Psalm 27, verse 10, though, though he says in Psalm 27, verse 10. He says, though my father and mother forsake me. He says. The Lord will take me in. The Lord will take care of me. And I like this New King James version of this verse. The Lord will take care of me because this is where the word insecurity comes from. Insecurity is to be with care. It means to be in care, to be with care, to be secure means to be without care. Whoa. Now think about this. And then it means two things. Actually, it means to be without care and without apprehension. That's what it means to be secure. You can study the words yourself uh, another time. But trust me as your pastor and the Bible teacher here. But go study it. Dig into it, man. I, I, I applaud that and encourage that. But if you if you dig enough, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that the root to this word secure means to be without care and without apprehension. And the word insecurity means to be with care and with apprehension. So you're you're always apprehensive. You're there's no confidence. There's no firm footing. There's no assurance there. You can't pray with confidence because you're insecure whether God will answer you. You can't walk with confidence because you're not sure that you are going to not stumble. You're not you can't be in a relationship without confidence because you you're apprehensive to make a commitment. You're apprehensive to to trust. You're apprehensive to be humble. You're apprehensive to to be open. You're apprehensive to be transparent because somebody's going to take advantage or somebody's going to lie about you, gossip about you. Hey, they're going to gossip about you anyway. Good news today. <laughs> to be secure means you're without care concerning that you're without apprehension about praying boldly. Come boldly to the throne of God's grace. He doesn't say come apprehensively. He says, come boldly. He said the righteous are as bold as a lion. They're not apprehensive. We're the righteousness of God in Christ. We're bold as lions. We can share our faith with boldness. We can lay hands on the sick with boldness. When we're insecure, we're constantly apprehensive about stepping out on the water, tithing, giving generously. We're insecure because we have the care that it might not work, the care that we got to take care of ourselves, the care that we're left to ourselves. But look at what it says. My father and mother could reject me and forsake me, abandon me and leave me. But the Lord will take care of me. This is what brings. This is what brings security. This is what makes you a secure person, a confident person, a secure person, someone who is without apprehension, someone who is without care, carefree from what others think about you, carefree concerning your acceptance and worth, carefree. To be insecure means to be in care and without a root. This is also what this word means. Insecure. It means to be without a root, without a cure, insecure, without a cure, without sufficient grounds for confidence. But what gives us confidence? We have confidence in first John four, verse 18 gives us confidence. Look at what it says. Let's let's look there real quick. First John four, 
18. After verse 17, where he says, as he is, so are we in this world. Verse 18, we're having some Bible study now, aren't we? You, get, you, you getting into this? He said, there is no fear in love. There is no insecurity in love. But perfect love casts out fear, casts out insecurity, casts out apprehension, casts out lack of confidence because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 19, he says, for we love him because he first loved us. Now go back to verse 17. We love him because he first loved us in verse 19. But the root of this all is in verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So now notice what he says, because as he is, so are we in this world. That is the cause because. So as he is, so are we in this world is a cause of something. It causes something. What does it cause? It causes us to have boldness and confidence in the day of judgment. Now, the day of judgment is not the day where we stand before the Lord, because we're not going to go to the day of judgment with God. If you're born again, Hebrews 928, I know I'm sharing a lot of stuff with you scripture here, but this is this. You just go chew on this, man. Chew on this till Sunday and you'll come just ready to chew the chairs off of the person in front of you. Chew the back off of that chair, man. It's just ah, so good. You'll be ready for more on Sunday. So chew this up for the next three or four days. And um, but when Jesus comes back in his second coming, there is no reference to sin. He will appear without reference to sin in verse Hebrews 9, 28. So he's not coming to talk about your sin and to judge us because he's already removed our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How could God judge us about our sin if he took it away? Hebrews 8, 12 says his, our sins and our iniquities, he will remember no more. Do you think just now he'll remember no more? No, and now and forever he will remember no more. No more now, no more tomorrow, no more next week, no more in heaven, no more on our way to heaven, no more, no more on this earth. He will remember our sins no more. So when he returns, he has no there is no judgment for us. There will be the throne of judgment for everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ. And the judgment is you had every opportunity to be saved that anybody else had. And you rejected the one who substituted for your sins. Now you have to pay the punishment that Jesus paid because you didn't accept his payment. You're trying to pay the bill yourself. But this, this is so. So when he says, go back to I said all that to say in first John four seventeen, he says, we'll have boldness in the day of judgment. We don't need boldness when we get to heaven. We need boldness now. There will not be any days of judgment in heaven, but there are days of judgment now where Satan is constantly trying to judge you. You're trying to judge yourself. Your heart's trying to condemn you. Your heart's trying to judge you. Your heart's trying to criticize you. Your sins are trying to criticize you. Your mistakes are yelling at you. The enemy is accusing you. The Bible says he accuses the brethren day and night. So the day of judgment is every day the enemy comes to you telling, challenging your, your righteousness and challenging your right standing with God. That's the day of judgment. And we can have boldness in that day. The day of judgment is when the doctor says, sorry, but you only have six months to live. The cancer is growing. You got six months to live or your heart is all clogged and you're going to die. You might as well just have one more, you know, piece of fried chicken and just, you know, say goodbye to your loved ones. You're one you're one cholesterol filled chicken breast away from heaven or hell. Uh, That's the day of judgment. Your sins are trying to judge you. Your diet is trying to judge you. 
sickness is trying to judge you and say you're you're. But in the day of judgment, we say, no, as he is, so am I in this world, in this world, as he is, so am I. The day of judgment is in this world. It's not in the world to come. You got that? So how can we have boldness in the day of judgment? Because. Just read it, because as he is, so whenever you see the word because that's the cause of something. So how can we have boldness in the day of judgment? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Boy, the Bible makes sense when you read it, doesn't it? Insecurity starts with a self-conscious awareness of a gap. The gap that makes us feel insecure is the gap between who God says we are and what we think we are. That gap creates insecurity. The gap between who God says we are and who we think we are. Like, I know God says I'm the head and not the tail, but I sure feel like the tail right now. Okay, you can either choose to believe what you feel or believe what God says. There's nothing wrong with feeling that. Just don't put your faith in that. Right. Feel it, but then appeal it. I feel that, but God says I'm above only and not beneath. God says I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. God says I'm blessed coming in and blessed going. God says that wherever the sole of my foot treads, it'll be given to me. God says take dominion in this earth. God says the prayers of the righteous avail much. And I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. It's a gap. Insecurity is this gap between who God says we are and what we feel or who God says we are and what other people think about us. That gap, that gap between what God says we have and what it looks like we have. That gap between who we want to be and who it looks like we're going to end up being. The gap between how I want others to see me and how I see myself and the gap between what we've dreamed and what we actually are living in. And see, that's why we need to attach our faith to what God says. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. It's just what are you attaching your faith to, to what God says about you or your feelings, to what God says about you or the DNA of your past. We need to stop being defined by our history and start being defined by God's story, his story, not our story. His story is really his story. We need to look at history from God's point of view not our point of view, because from my point of view, I was born in 19 something (laughs) with this problem and that problem and this curse and that curse and this addiction and that all that was in my DNA from not just my parents, but from Adam, from Adam and Eve. But when I look at it from God's perspective, see, I think that I began in 19 something but God says, if, if this is now and this is 19, whatever, or 2000, whenever you were born, if if this is what we think is the beginning and this is where we are currently. But the beginning is really over here, not here. The beginning of your life is really when you were conceived in the heart of God before the world began. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He loved you before the foundation of the world. That's why Jesus died before the crucified Lamb of God 
was slain before the foundation of the world because this is that was your beginning. Your be, your beginning. You began before this earth began. This earth was put here for you because God loves you so much. The sun was put up there for you because God loves you so much. The moon was and the stars were put up there for you to enjoy them because God loves you so much. He had you in mind with everything that was created. Every flower, every plant, every beautiful thing in this world was put there because God had you in mind. And see that that kind of biblical worldview takes the care out of your soul, the anxiety and the worry. And I got to take. No, God will take care of me because if he clothed, he said, Jesus said, look at the lilies of the field. Even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like these plants, like these flowers, like these lilies. He said, and your heavenly father cares way more about you than the lilies of the field. So we, we sometimes look at, wow, look at how rich Solomon was. You're richer. You may, may not be showing up right now, but you've got to start renewing your mind to who you really are. You have that much worth. You have that much value. And God has that much care for you. The more you realize he cares for you, the less anxious and care that you will carry in your life. So the focus should not be on fixing all your cares and fixing all your worries and solving all the things you're worried about. The focus should be on magnifying how much God cares for you and which will e- evaporate worry and care and insecurity. Why it's so important that we get healed from this is that it because insecurity leads to withdrawal, withdrawal. I I can't even say that word withdrawal to withdraw with an L after it withdrawal. It leads to withdrawal from close relationships. Men are insecure around other men. Women are insecure around other women and like and vice versa. People pose a threat to somebody who's insecure. Other people, the way they look or the way they carry themselves or the way they the things they have in their lives or the image that they seem to portray is a threat to an insecure soul. And that's why it's so important to to. So you don't if once you're delivered and healed from insecurity, you no longer have to like get to the bottom of why does that person what's their motive? What's what's really behind it? Or, or they got ahead because somebody helped them or if they really didn't get it. But see, we start accusing them. We don't even know their situation. And we start accusing other people in order to rationalize the, the or to minimize the threat, to mitigate the threat that we feel from. Does this make any sense at all? Um, I'm just going to wrap this up in a, in a minute here, but um, we'll try to always seek to surround ourselves with with less with people that are that are less secure than we are in order to not feel so insecure. It, we feel threatened by great people rather than inspired by them. And rather than seeing ourselves as a potential inspiration to them, too. We should look at ourselves like, wait a minute, God's greatness is in me also. There's something special about me just as much about them. Maybe their specialness showed up sooner because of a talent or a skill that they discovered. But I got something in there, too. I just got to dig it out. It's in there, though. It might be it might it might it might take till I'm 80 or 90, but it's in there. And I'm going to keep digging around until it shows up. Insecurity leads to letting the wrong people influence you. Insecurity leads to over aggressiveness. When you feel threatened, you you feel a need to attack others or lash out to show you're stronger or to overcompensate for feeling weak. It it makes you defensive when you're insecure. It makes you defensive. I've got a whole teaching I wanted to get to on defensiveness, but we won't have time tonight. It makes you it makes it hard to correct you. You take you you interpret correction as rejection when you feel insecure. It leads to jealousy and other negative emotions that come from a sense of a sense of uh, powerlessness and and mere mortality. I like what First Corinthians three verse three says. He said, "Man, you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not walking like mere men?" He says. You're just walking. You're just acting like mere men. 
when you're jealous and insecure, you're you're acting like mere men. You're behaving like mere men. What is he trying to say is he's trying to say you are not a mere mortal. You are a new species of being. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The word is he's a new species of being. He is among a people that have never existed before a creation that has never existed before a species that has never existed before a race that has never existed before. This will deliver us from racism and and all those divisions that we're trying to figure out and trying to make sure we don't cross lines and make sure we don't say the wrong thing. And we make sure that we're not overly sensitive to how somebody treats us and we're not being over and we're not mistreating somebody and all those those mental gymnastics we have to go through no longer exist when we see people as a new species of being in Christ. There's only two races in this world. There's the race of believer and unbeliever. And the beautiful thing about that is that the race of the unbeliever can be converted to believer. They can become a new race. They can become a part of our new race. Not us, not a, uh, a, a not a Hitler-esque r- r- supreme race, superior race, but a new species of being that, have never, that has never existed before. There is no superior race in the earth, white over black or Hispanic, Puerto Rican over Hispanic, black over white or any of that. None, none of that. There is no we're all in Christ the same. So. okay, um, we got to we're we're comma. Let's stand together. I can't put a period or an exclamation point on this, but I can sure put a comma on it and we'll pick this up next time. Does this make any sense so far to anybody? It's his love. It's his love that heals us, by the way, the root To be insecure means to be without a root. And the Bible says in Ephesians one that we're to be or verse or chapter three, verse 17 and 18, we're to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. When we when we the more we meditate on God's love, the more we're rooted and grounded and the more secure we become because we have a root, a real root. The love of God is our root. And if the root be holy, all the branches will be holy.